namo tassa bhagavato arthur samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arthur samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arthur samma sambuddhassa yeah, let's take a, a form of, of refuge so it, it it describes the full range of, of refuge uh, which I'll just I'll go into detail tonight I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I take refuge in the, the three inner, the, uh, the Guru, the Adam, the Kini, and Daks. I take refuge in the three Buddha bodies of the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. And I take refuge in ultimate reality or suchness, the Buddha nature. Good. It's a good way to start. And remembering that we're um, all Dharma talks are aspiring. Uh, for the full emergence of the unity of compassion and wisdom uh, or um, primordial awareness and the full expression of compassion. So that's what we're on about. So the, the theme for this morning, a number of themes this morning, is the what is called the uh, four common foundations. Of all schools of Buddhism, so so wherever you go, uh, it doesn't matter Japan, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Tibet, uh, India does, doesn't matter Burma. Uh, contained within the core teachings of all Buddhism are these four common foundations, and it's very very easy for us to skip over these four common foundations. Uh, because they they sound so straightforward or a little bit um, odd, and yet to not comprehend them deeper and deeper and deeper, which takes years, uh, takes years, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, there and I'm speaking, uh, you know, I, I teach very classically, modern but classic. Uh, one doesn't actually establish confidence in any real progression of dharma. So when I say dharma, I, I, really, I have to keep saying this because it gets so confused. I get emails and people tell me things. When I say the word dharma or Buddhism, I don't, I don't mean meditation. That's only one component. That's just one single component. But the confidence in engaging in the path of liberation, which is the unity of wisdom and compassion, or compassion wisdom, is really resting on the four foundations. Not just the four noble truths, but the four foundations. So we need to, I need to explain that. And then the other theme this morning is uh, the four foundations, but then is this difficult because I was asked, what's a Buddhist? Yes? And you'll notice that around uh, religions, is faith, yes? But faith is very, very, uh, what's the word? We have suspicion. And we have mistrust around faith. So I want to talk about what, from, from a text, read from a, a really great classic text, about 300 years old, uh, about which is the most lucid, beautiful explanation of the traditional perspective of faith, trust, confidence in Buddhism. And I think you're going to be so surprised what faith is. Because if, you, if I was a Tibetan teacher, I may be a Lama, but I'm, not, I'm a Westerner, but if I was a Tibetan teacher, one of the first things they'd probably say right here and right now is the entire path of liberation rests on devotion. And you go, 
So I'm being indoctrinated, I'm being issued into a religion. You see? So what were the two exercises, two meditations I gave out last night? What are we devoted to every day? Right? Is that right? What was the other one? Training. training. What are we training in? And they're, they're related. What we devote ourselves to is what we train in. It's that simple. So anybody who says to you, oh, you know, you're joining a kind of a Buddhist cult. You're, 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 are you going to become devoted to that? Well, actually, what is this entire society devoted to? Make sense? So first thing is the four common foundations, which is, is how you actually grasp the import, the profundity, the, the weightiness, the intrinsically, perfectly logical, intrinsic thing of what this path is about, which is liberation to bring out, as I said last night, to bring out what you've already got. That's, by the way, now that's actually contrary to the premise of Christianity. You see, so there's a difficulty here as a Westerner in a Judaic Christian upbringing that we're not starting with original sin, we're starting with original purity. There's not one person in this room, we might have heaps of sin. But underneath all that is original purity. There's no other way you can become liberated. Now, you see, but then we've got the problem is, or we've got the problem, do you actually even believe in liberation? Because the weight of a, a Judeo-Christian training, me too, is going to say, it's not possible. There's only one person that ever did that, and he's male. So a whole bunch of people in the room who may as well just forget it. Do you see what I'm getting at? And that's not, that's not being said to you all the time, but when you are raised in that culture, it goes very, very, very deep as a mistrust of who you are and what you could do. If you're raised in an Eastern culture, let's say in a Buddhist family, and your uncle's a saint, and the whole society recognizes that, someone in your extended family, or even close, is going to be an amazing saint in that culture because they've done the work. Then you go, yeah. And when you talk to Tibetans, or other like that, they go, absolutely. Liberation, full Buddha, absolutely. There's not even a question that underneath all this, these problems is an extraordinary awake mind. So now we have a Western mind that goes, yeah, I want to study this, but the doubt, the, the, the viral doubt is in there, even when you're sitting in meditation, Breathing in, breathing out. And what comes up? I couldn't. It's not something I could do. It's them. They can do it. You see what I'm saying? And that's not even verbal. Because every excuse in the book is given to the teacher why they're not going to. Believe me, every excuse. But underneath it is what? Systemic doubt. So that systemic doubt has to get cleared. And for many Westerners, it gets cleared logically. 
takes forever. God. It's much faster this way, you know? Just, just get it. I really mean it. It's kind of funny. But, but for a lot of Westerners, one has to hear the logic, the, with what they say in the old Buddhist text, the internal logic of the teachings, where you go, yeah, it's obvious. It makes perfect sense. That's why you have some very famous scientists who are Buddhists. They just go, yeah, it's just logic, it's science. So what I'm going to describe in the Four Foundations is actually is quite scientific. It just makes perfect sense. But you see, Buddhahood, as our intrinsic nature of our minds, there's no scientific proof. That's a leap of faith. That's a leap of extraordinary kind. You either get it by direct real experience, or it grows where it becomes un, unmistakable reality. And we all start where we start. A little bit of logic, a little bit of faith, a little bit of doubt, a lot of doubt. And you progress on until it becomes understand. Why do we meditate? The purpose of meditation is so that the experiences are vividly real and become physiologic, not a thinking experience. If it's thinking, you always get creamed. Yes, I'm full of perfect equanimity. That was a great meditation. Then someone steps on your toe and life changes. So the first of the four common foundations to all, all schools, all traditions of Buddhism, is the preciousness of the human body. This, this is the preciousness of being human. Now, I'm not using that word precious. Precious. But using the word precious as an incredibly valuable gift that is rare, special, but is a vehicle, the body of a human being is an amazing vehicle for attaining liberation. So first of all, the rarity of a human body. This is scientific. It's also Buddhist. People back then could observe and make observations, and they were right. We have about 7 billion, somewhere about 7 billion people on the planet today, yes? There are more insects in this local area than there are human beings. There's more sentient beings in a teaspoon of soil outside. Well, there's about one billion sentient creatures in a teaspoon of soil. If you take the creatures on this planet, big animals that you can see, and 99% of all life that you can't see, we can't see, by the way, 90%, 99% of all life we cannot see on this planet. It's microscopic. That's the majority of life. We're an extremely rare form of sentience. We're an extremely rare form of intelligence. Is that clear? Any scientist who studied biology, biology or is a biologist would tell you the same thing. This is an incredibly rare manifestation of life, this, this creature. Even if we get to 20 billion, even if we get to 100 billion humans on this planet, which would be really something, maybe not such a good thing, we'd still be of such a rare quality. Make sense? It's very rare. 
In the tradition of Dharma, there's a little bit less modern science, but in the tradition of Buddha Dharma or Buddhism, it takes a lot of merit, it takes a lot of good beingness to incarnate or take the form of a human body. You have to have a lot of good stuff behind you. No matter how defiled you think your states are, it takes incredibly good qualities to take on a human form. Otherwise, it busts up and falls apart. And you can see that, actually, by people who are in terrible mental states who can actually really, really, really kill themselves or kill others. So this, this form is fragile. The thing about the rare and precious human body is it's fragile. Have you noticed that? It's extreme. Every single creature on this planet, their bodies are fragile. This must become apparent. So not only is this an incredible gift to have a body that can think, reason, hear, have happiness, discern. Do you know what I mean by discern? Actually think clearly, have feelings, ponder, reflect, like right now. This is extraordinary what we're doing. How many creatures can do this? This is an extraordinary achievement of form to be able to have the computing power and the feeling power that you have, we have in this room. It's really rare. But it's very fragile. And it's subject to loss easily. And it's subject to damage to the point where we never know if we'll be actually able to use our feelings and our brains. Do some of you know people that you kind of went, how did that happen? Where, where do they go? They just passed away, or now they're in a mental, they're in a mental institution and can't function. Do you know what I mean? I hope you know people like this. I know lots. Suddenly vibrant, really good states, and gone. Someone I, I not know very well, just, just three weeks and passed away due to pancreatic cancer, just like that. Any one of us, by the way, the delusion is, the delusion that we have is that we're all going to be fine. Do you know that's not true? You know that, right? But yet we live differently than causality. The reality is, is that we're not, that 60% of us right now in the room are chronically ill with something. That's fact. We simply don't know when we'll get seriously ill or even moderately ill or pass away or have an infirm, is that right? Infirm, an inf, what we call an infirm mind that can't even practice this. So this body, which can actually think and reason and has all the seeds and possibilities of flowering into a saint, realizing Buddha nature, the intrinsic nature of the mind, is a very rare opportunity. You're not, like right now, we don't have to do what a, um, a junco, you know, a bird, junco, you know juncos? Like this, when they're feeding. You're here in the room, you're listening to Dharma, right? You're listening to the Buddha Dharma, and you're not having to go. Or how 
hummingbird? Have you watched hummingbird feeder? I know I, for the last three months in retreat, I placed the hummingbird feeder two feet away from where I sat and ate. So I really got, and they got to trust me, and they got to, but I used to really observe them. Watch a hummingbird. Never knowing if the rufus is going to, you know, the male roof is going to knock it out, or where, they're, where they are in the pecking order, or if a falcon's nearby. No idea. And the raccoons feeding, but always looking up to see if the, the alpha male is around, is going to get into a tear over it. Yes, or if the human's watching. It's okay. It's okay. So here we can actually sit for three hours together. We don't even have to be concerned. Isn't that amazing? Do you know there's places I can't do this in the world? Many places I can't do this without being concerned that we're going to be killed. Or there's a police officer, a secret police officer in the audience listening and watching every, and listening to every word I say, like in China. It's amazing. It's really rare. We can do things that are extraordinary with our being. So what's the purpose of teaching the preciousness of the human existence? It's a rare gift. Get on with it. And what's the purpose? <laughs> Liberation. So if you contemplate how rare it is to have this body and this mind, you, you could ask the question, which is very classic, what am I doing with it? And I could lose it any time. Is that correct? Is that fact? Anytime. And what are we doing with it? Are we using it to the fullest capacity of a human being? We don't pay saints very much, but who do we pay the most in our society for career, career attainment? Who, who are they? No, no, not even close. No, 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 no. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, soccer players? Baseball players? Not, not even close. Not even close. I don't think there's many psychiatrists make $20 million a year. Or $10 million a year. Not, not very many, unless they own a large clinical operation and the drug company at, at the same time, and a hospital. And then maybe... And then maybe, which is the mo- some of the model that's used in the United States, right? So it's a good, good model. You know, we had an amazing thing happen, not, uh, not for Canadians, but do you know there's an amazing thing happened in the United States last week? Do you know what happened in the United States? The legalization of Obamacare by the Supreme Court? You know, it was taken to court, yes? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something? historically, that um, Americans will now be allowed to have access to medical care? All Americans? Medical care? It's not something. By the Supreme Court? This is something else. That's compassion. Beautiful, beautiful demonstration of eight years of willful compassion. No president has ever been able to bring that about. That's something. Health care for everybody. That's, that's such a beautiful demonstration of compassion. Not absolute compassion, but relative compassion. Beautiful. 
eight years in the making, except many presidents have tried and have failed. So that was about the, the, the comment about uh, psychiatrists. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a big lobby there saying, no, don't do this. You're going to be looking at how we make profits. So unless one actually treats this body-mind as a precious, rare opportunity to flower what is possible as a human being, uh, we'll waste it. And we'll waste it because we're told that's the very best thing we could do with a human being, a soccer player or a baseball player or this or that. It doesn't matter. But what, what do we have actually in us? So until recently, up until about 150 years, do you know, I don't know if you history, but up until about 150 years ago, um, even 200 years ago, the advent of the Industrial Revolution, the most societies on the planet, Western societies, Eastern societies, the height of human achievement was going after sainthood, whether it's as a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Catholic, Christian, uh, a Muslim, it didn't matter. All over the world, the height of what the, the greatest honor was given, not just to the elders, but the elders that had achieved sainthood. You know that, right? Not many people do. It's only in the last 150 years that's been knocked out. So it's a recent invention that that, that pursuit of a life goal of, of saintliness, whether it's a, 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 a Catholic, a Christian saint, or a Sufi saint, or a Muslim saint, that, that pursuit, that life pursuit, and the recognition by society that that's the highest pursuit there is, not monetarily, but by recognition of honor has only dropped away in the last 150 years. And not by all societies, just by our society. So we think we're very special, but actually we're quite deluded because we're saying, well, we're not saying this, but this is what happens. Uh, we're very special. Our recent uh, 100 years is um, the way it should be. No. We've accomplished a lot. We have extraordinary. I mean, I would say that a good portion of us are alive because of medical research. Anybody not? I would say that, well, maybe, maybe you, Cole, at 17. But, but actually, most people in the room are alive because of antibiotics. I am. I, I could, a couple years ago, very likely be dead with pneumonia if I hadn't had the right antibiotics. And the right antibiotics. Many of us today are alive because of that. It's an incredible achievement. But what for? To just live longer? To just make it till 85? Why? To be slightly demented or more than that when you're older? And have your children and your society care for you? What's it for? So, number one, preciousness of human existence as a gift that allows the, flower, the full flowering of, the, of what's in a human, which is what? Buddha nature. That is, full realization of compassion, wisdom. That's what's for.
Anybody have any questions about that one? It is a bit of a leap of faith, but actually, if you really contemplate it, you'll see, wow, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Mostly rhetorical. Okay. I just pose them. I just pose them as they arise, okay. as a way of teaching. It's just sort of I don't know where it happened. Maybe that was that university course on Socrates. You know. Should we hold back on our questions or just ask questions? I like I love I like the questions, but it's partly sometimes there's a pause, sometimes there's a, there's just a, a bit of a space. Okay. Sometimes ask questions, sometimes just let it go. Sometimes write it down. Yes. Sometimes the best thing is to write the questions down and see. You might see that they'll be answered five minutes later. Or it's not even a question of answer. Sometimes I pose questions. You know, I think I think you were there uh, during the the five month Abhidhamma retreat. I I posed. I actually didn't just pose. I I gave out. Was it five hundred? Five hundred insight meditations in five months, or no, actually. Three months. months. Yeah, four months. And, and many of them will never be worked on, but they're there to pose question to bring the mind along. Some are actually worthy, you know, worthier for going into retreat. Others are something like yesterday with the, what are you devoted to? What are you training in? That, that could be weeks, months, years. But to, to move you along. You know, we do this naturally. This is another thing. Human being is always in a state of question. Not just anxiety. Anxiety is actually a question. Who am I? And what am I doing in the world? And am I safe? That's actually the number one question that most of you have. Should we get this over with? In the room? It's true. Is this safe? That's all. That's where the fear is and that's where the doubt is. Is this safe? And am I going to get hurt? That's, that's it. Because you've got to get down to the organism animal level. We can, we can look like we're interested. But what's the organism on about? It wants to know, is this safe? And am I going to get hurt? And is this good food? Just like going into a shopping, into the grocery store. Is it safe? Is it good? And is it nourishing? And I'm here, biased absolutely, utterly biased. It's safe. It's actually the only safety you're going to have. You don't rest on any safety. You know that, eh? There's no safety in this world. Zero. Like, zero. There's, there's none at all. It's all hocus-pocus. The only safety is Buddha nature. It's the only way you're going to find it. I'm biased completely. I state that. Totally, utterly biased. Not, this ground isn't safe at all. When the earthquake comes, you, you, have you ever been in an earthquake, full-on earthquake? Yeah? No safety at all. You're just jelly mass. If you can move, you're lucky. It's the most extraordinary thing to be in an earthquake and just be turned into jelly and realize you're just an insignificant, tiny thing. There's no safety whatsoever. There's safety in realizing the nature of mind. 
got a question way back there. Yeah. See, this is, this is the question of what do you mean by good? What you yeah. mean by good might be different than what I mean by good, or other people okay. mean by good. Um. How, about, how about good and wise and intelligent? Okay. Good, 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 good is... Uh... But there's only goodness in the world, is there? Just, just, just a second. Let, let, let the room settle oh, down sorry. a bit. That's right. You know what? I'll, I'll tell you what. We're, let's leave that. Because that's a very... That's, that's, that's going to take some time. Um, yeah, that's going to take a bit of work. It's easy. Easy, but we'll take some time. Take some time. Okay, next, next common foundation, which you're all going to agree on, but emotionally not. The, the simplest thing to understand, but emotionally and cognitively no way. Every single thing, whether a mountain, a rock, a room, or a human being, or an insect, is a transient phenomenon. Easy, isn't it? Yet we don't live that way. Not at all. We don't live for, we don't, we, yeah. we simply do not know when the end of this formation is. And anybody else in this room or in Nanaimo, and I've actually pulled out the tables where we actually can see the number of people that pass away every second on the planet the number of people that pass away, pass away, all the way down to our town, wherever we are. I'll pull out the numbers and people go, wow. Yes, people die. Anything that gets born dies. Anything that's created falls apart. All of our mountains are being eroded. They're not permanent. The earth isn't permanent. Solar systems aren't permanent. The universe is not permanent. Our mind states aren't permanent. You know that, eh? None of our emotions are permanent. This talk today is not permanent. <laughs> Even if it gets recorded, it can get lost on a hard disk. It only takes a massive solar storm to knock out all our telecommunications equipment. No banking. No internet. Nothing. Entire way of our life stops for who knows how long. Actually, that's all just a massive solar, solar storm. Do you believe it? It's true. It's true. Is that frightening you? No, it's reality. It's just reality. It's in, there's nobody in the right mind who says, oh, that's absolutely true. But we never live that way. We live as if impermanence is wrong. 
we take chances with our lives. We do things that are contrary to impermanence, as if we're going to live forever. As if we can beat the odds. As if we're in a casino. You know a casino? We're going to beat the house. Do you know what I mean by that? Beat the house? You know, when you go to a casino, it's stacked against you. Heavily stacked against you. Impermanence is deeply stacked. But yet, we keep thinking that we're going to beat impermanence. We don't have any time. I'm not frightening you. I'm just saying it's fact. I know I don't have any time. I have very, very few years left in my life. I'm not complaining. That's reality. Whether it's a year or two or three or 10 or 15 or 20, very, very few years left in my life. It's not just because I turned 60. I had this for a long time. This, this being uh, tries to live every day as fully and deeply in uh, unfolding Dharma for others as public can, I don't have an idea of how many more minutes left. That's reality. That's, that's the reality. It's not frightened. It's not worried. It's not concerned. I'm, ha- I'm happy to go. Believe me. That'd be great. It's happened a few times in my life, so I, I, I know it's, it's great. I have no idea. You have no idea. The time is so precious not just for yourself, but for your loved ones to support, the people that need you, the people that are going to flourish and flower by what you do, whether it's relative or ultimate compassion. Right? It's a very short time. That's why when I teach, I teach for, like, this is the, literally, like the last time I might ever see you. Hmm? I do. I teach that way. Why? I don't know. Because that's the fact. I get an email, and one of my young students, or in their 40s or 50s, they're going to die. All of a sudden, I'm dying. I'm going. It's not just 80. It's not just 70. It can be 20. Whether you're saint or enlightened, it simply doesn't matter. The body formations are extremely fragile and extremely transient. And if you're going to go with the, is it called the actuarial tables in insurance? Yes? If you're going to go by that and play that game, good luck. I know people that do. And then they're surprised at the age of 75 that they actually have lost their cognitive abilities. They have their body, but they're not sharp. They're falling asleep. They can't remember anything. Did you see me say? So it's not just having a body, it's having a useful body and a useful brain, a useful heart, and a useful abdomen that can actually uh, be a gift to yourself and other people. Okay? Transience, transience, transience. Transience and the contemplation of transience as a meditation is the royal route to liberation. Not because you're frightened, but because you see reality. There isn't anything right now that isn't zooming before your eyes. And because of transience, 
one can actually be liberated of all past conditioning. Otherwise, it's hopeless. So the fact of transience becomes the most extraordinary of realities for liberation. Why? All that stuff that you think is hindering you has no firm foundation at all. It's made up in the mind as a firmness. That's why we don't even have to be concerned about past lives. Whatever you are now is what you were before. That's all. Simple. Oh, if you want to know what the past was, well, you just look at what it is now. That's how it works. It's called causality. You don't need to unravel anything. You just need to go forward. No regression is required. Maybe in psychotherapy, but in, in Buddha Dharma, you don't need to regress at all. Just go forward. Why? Change what the basis is now because it's the printout of before. Don't even need to be concerned about the past. Not even for liberation. For comfort, a good story is great. Do, do, do you understand that? For comfort, for feeling good about yourself and having a story about yourself that you can live with, then we do all kinds of things in society to do that. But for liberation, it gets in the way. In li for liberation, for real liberation, and which is and and compassion, a bit more than relative compassion, we simply don't need to know that story. We just need to proceed fresh and remove the patterning or the training that's in the way. Have you heard this before? Maybe not. This might be completely new. All those stories, it's in the way. Don't eat them. Even the story of no thought and having no thoughts is in the way. No thought is not liberation. No story making. Those that are dwelling in no thought and meditating to become a no thinker become no thinkers. But they don't become liberated. If you perfect no thought, that's what you train in and you are a no thinker. But you're not liberated out of anything except that now you've become really good at no thinking. I can train most of you in the room, if you give me enough time, I can train probably, oh, six, uh, a year to three years of retreat. All of you will be able to have lovely long moments of thought-free um, happiness, but not liberation. But good training, great, great training for meditation, it's good. And we do, and I, I teach that, and I train people on that. But it's not liberation. Either is no self. Get rid of yourself, and you're expert at no self. You've annihilated yourself. Congratulations. It's not liberation. There's no self to annihilate. And besides that, what's wrong with the self? It's what kind of self has been trained? Transient. Transient. There's nothing you... By the way, do you know this? There's nothing you can hold on to. Any state that you hold on to has already changed. Only the cognitive, clever mind makes it appear like it's the same. You weren't the same as yesterday. 
Ever looked at a picture of yourself when you were a child? Same person? Not even close. Not the same cells, not the same physiology. Only a mind makes up the story of continuity. Have you ever watched what happens in the morning? How many of you have ever really woken up really slowly? Any of you woken up really slowly? And watched it all come back again together? Ever woken up in a hotel room or an unfamiliar place and you don't know who you are? And it takes like three or four minutes to find out your name? And you're not seen up? You know, you're 28 years old or 32 and you're actually crushed and you go, I don't have a clue who I am. And I don't know where I am at all. Ever had that? Yeah, it easily happen when you're traveling a lot. And you go, you're lying on a hotel room, bed, and you go, not a clue where I am. Not a clue who I am. And if you're, if you have, uh, uh, if you're weak, weak ego, you freak out. If you're strong, you go, this is beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful. You just rest in that. Hmm. I wonder how long this is going to last. But if, you're, but if you're weak, it's like, <laughs> I need a self. There isn't, there isn't one. It just kind of creeps in over a period of 30, 40 seconds. But for most of us, we wake up so fast, right? It feels, oh yeah, okay, here I am. The autobiographical memory comes back, all those little modules in the brain. Well, there's no such thing. But those different parts, they come back and you go, oh, here I am. But actually, there's times when you can catch it and it just doesn't come back very fast. It just kind of like comes back in tiny little pieces and builds. And, you can, and if you really go deeply in meditation retreats, you can do this every day. You just lie in your bed and watch it come back. And when you go to sleep, you watch it all fall away until there's nothing left. Same as death. Every night we die. Every morning we get reborn again. And we put all back on the autobiographical stories and wear them as if they're actually uh, true. Well, it helps. It helps if you when you wake up with your partner in bed. It really helps. They they appreciate that, as opposed to a cockroach or a little Kafkaesque. Who are you? Hi, my name is George. Actually, you know what's something worth trying? I don't know if you could do it with this. This was great, but, um, It's a wonderful thing. Once in a retreat, I, I had... This is a long enough retreat I could do it with. This is five months. I had, I had everybody substitute their clothing with somebody else in retreat. And they partnered off, males and females. You know, it didn't matter. And they partnered off, and they dressed each other up in their clothes and had them become that other person for, uh, I think it was a day or a couple days. And people keep reminding me of how much they got out of that. It was one of those whimsical things I just kind of went, eh, put the makeup on and put the hat on, the shoes, the whole thing. And the transformation was remarkable because the, so much of our self-image, which is just transient fleeting moments of arising nerve, nerve, neural activity, uh, was shot to, to smithereens. Fantastic. Okay, transients. Got that one? Do you believe it? Sure. But we don't act like it. We don't act like it. Why is it important that we act like 
because we're really worried. We're really worried. We, what, we, what is it that we really do all day? You know, this, these are the things I ponder all the time. What, what is it that we do actually all day? What is, it, what is a human being is up to? You know, I, I take these into retreat. This is what I say. No, sorry. What is it we're really doing? What it, why are you here? Yeah. Thank you. That's it. Safety. In, an, in a complete universe, it's not actually going to give that to you, but you will if you do something else. You've got to find out what reality is. We're looking for safety. We're looking not to get hurt. We're looking for how to stay momentarily happiness in the face of a universe that isn't like that. And in the teaching, that's called bewilderment, confusion. So we want to come out of that. The bliss is extraordinary. Anicca, vatta, sankara, upadaya, vaya, damino, upajitva, narujanti. Right? Sukha, uh, upasamo, sukho. So it means uh, by contemplating impermanence, by contemplating the nature of suffering, by contemplating the nature of no real, no real self, no real permanent nature of self, we come to the great bliss. That's a very ancient prayer of insight in the uh, Southeast Asian Buddhist tradition. It's repeated over and over and over again. By penetrating these, these, this reality, we come to a great bliss. Not a momentary happiness. Not chasing after objects. They're all transient. Three days happy with the shoes, it's gone. Got the new boat, gone. Got the new partner, right? Six months passionately in love, and all starts to change. Doesn't mean it's not great. But we live in a world where we're actually trying to beat the house at the odds. Do you see? And that's called, in the Dharma, it's called bewilderment and delusion. And it makes people very, very unhappy. Or people try to stay happy, doing happy things. But that's not actually liberation. It's just simply more moments stacked together of, st- of staying happy. Right? It's not liberation. It's actually clinging. It's clinging. There is a happiness that comes by letting go. It's profound. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is just then spontaneously act out of compassion and don't have to even think about it. Doesn't that be nice? Don't have to think about a thing. You don't have to think about anything. Nothing. Okay. Number three. Number three and number four are sometimes put in different orders. I prefer number three as causality. Now, I spoke about it yesterday. There's a few, I think, a few new faces in the room. A few new faces and bodies in the room. Um, But I'm going to repeat a little bit. The unmistakable fact is everything that you do, think about, builds. Builds something. A little bit, tiny bit, big things. Have you had something you can think about in your life that was a building by mental building that came to fruition? Anybody build a house? How'd that happen? I'm going to build a house. And then all of a sudden there's a house. You know, a year later, uh, nine months, nine months later, ten months later, 
12 months later, two years later. Isn't that something? Let's build a civic center. Boom. Or not. Let's go on safari. Oh, air tickets are booked. We're on our way. That's how everything happens. That's why you're in the room. So I, I, I'm not going to repeat myself that much, but I want to get the point across. This point about what's called karma. Have you heard the word karma? The word karma in Sanskrit simply means activity, and really it means activity of the mind. Whatever the mind engages in builds something. Small to big. Sometimes it's minor. It's really minor. We don't even notice it. Like, for instance, we may not be really sharp enough to notice that we drink an entire container of haagen ice cream. We may feel terrible the next day. But that simply got built by mental impression because we ignored the fact that we're now on our 30th scoop and we feel sick, but actually our, our intellect is saying, oh, awesome, it's great. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Every little thought builds. But some thoughts build more than others. Some don't go very far. But when you put 30,000 of the same thoughts together and string them all together over months and years, you build tissue. You build brain tissue. You build connections in the brain. You build a way of seeing reality that's so thick and so real, you couldn't even entertain anything else like thought-free for more than 10 seconds. No way. I couldn't do it. Who could do it? See? Or that there may be other beings right here in the room. Where? You've been taught there aren't. Therefore, you don't see them. You say, well, how's that possible? Because we see based on conditioning. We experience the world based on conditioning. Is this fun? I find this fun. If you actually grasp, and I don't mean just intellectually, if you grasp here causality, the world will change for you so radically, so amazingly, because you're going to see everything as causality. Why that happens. Things just don't happen. They just don't happen. And that gives an incredible freedom, because then you know how to build a Buddha body, like an auto body. You know? How do you build a car? Can you build a car without a carburetor? Maybe, I don't know. But I got two carburetors to fix, a dual carburetor on a car. Okay? They're stuck. The car is not going to work without the carburetors working. And then I'm going to find something else. There's an old car. It's an MGB, 1974. I like it because it's a study in causality. All the components must work together. I don't have to go, what happened to me in the past, I simply need to go forward and get all the components working to build the car. 
What are we on about in the Dharma? We're building a Buddha body. Body, speech, mind. Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. I don't think some of you have had teaching on this, but that's okay. They're just words. The, the mind of how a Buddha experiences, the speech and the energetic body of how a Buddha would experience a fully enlightened being, and the manifestation in physical form of a Buddha. That's what we're doing. Those are the three Buddha bodies we're actually uncovering. That's the purpose of the teaching. They're already there. They peek out everyone's now. So causality is like it. If you don't know causality, you don't build goodness. You don't build virtue. You think you can actually get around ethics. Can't. You think you can get around a clear mind. Can't. You think that suddenly a mystical experience will happen, a thunderbolt will come down, and you're instantly enlightened because you didn't do anything. But you're entitled, so you should get it. Or you attended a Dharma class, therefore you should become enlightened. That's about how silly it is, but I know people that think that way. It's not causal. It would be like not filling up your tires in the car and thinking that you can drive um, to Victoria on, you know, and nothing's going to happen. Does this make sense? And yet we live that way. This is the emotional state that wants to be a-causal in a universe of causality. It's crazy. And because it's a-causal, it makes people crazy. Does that make sense? Because we work a-causally against causality, it hurts us deeply because we're bewildered by how things happen. How many times recently have I heard, how did they, they died. I go, yeah, 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 they died. That's what we do. But, 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 yeah, causality. How did that baby happen? Well, do you know how babies happen? And they go, how did that happen? Causality. How did I get an upset stomach? It was the food poisoning. You know, like... So that bewilderment gets in the way, and it's very confusing, and it really hurts. Take it away, and you know that there's actually a reason. And you can build another story, another manifestation. Which manifestation would you like to have? So, a devotion? Which manifestation right now would you like to have? That's the question, isn't it? Is this not logical? What you build is what you become. So what is the building? When the Buddha became enlightened, he is reputed to have said, I don't think there's anybody around, but what he said was, at the, just after the moment of complete, full, not, not complete full enlightenment, that came a little bit later, that was through the contemplation of the Abhidhamma, through causality. But when he became enlightened, really enlightened, he is reportedly said, I have found ye, O builder, you shall build no more. That doesn't mean the end, it just means he knows how it's all built. That's an incredible freedom. 
If you know how things are built, you can build anything. What, do you, what are we building? What are we doing with this precious human body, this cathedral of light? You say, but, 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 I can hear it. I can hear it, right? It's so loud. I can hear it. It's like, it's like you're screaming at me. But, 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 but I, I, but I, but I, but I, but I, but I, but I. If you've never been in a cathedral, you don't know how to build a cathedral. You know what I mean? So first of all, you actually have to hear what Buddha nature is, what liberation is, so you can actually go, I'd like to be that. If you're in Siberia, and you never hear cello music, you may never become a cello player, even if you're naturally endowed with being the world's best cello player. So here we are going, Oh, I just want to meditate and become enlightened without ever even knowing and studying what it is. It's not possible. And that's why lineage and teachers are absolutely vital. It's not possible. It's not possible. You know, you could probably build a car off the internet. Correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But you can't reveal Buddha nature off the internet. You can't. might have had enough of that one. So, let me give you another example about causality. If I haven't said enough. How we conduct our life. Now, let's, let's, let's say, okay, I'm going to become enlightened through meditation. And I'm going to meditate an hour a day. It's simply not causal. It's not bad. Good, please meditate an hour a day. But it's not causal. What's causal? To build and reveal Buddha body. All day long. All day long. Everything about our conduct. Everything about our speech. Everything about our body. What we put in, what we give others, what we take in, how we speak, how we act in the world, is building a Buddha body or building what? The same thing. And as some of the greatest teachers have said, the gray, the neutral, is the worst defilement. It's the worst defilement. Just being, not going to go anywhere. And entitlement, which is really rare in our culture, <laughs> entitlement is, is a causal. As I would say, with this, this, this point on causality, is probably one of the biggest hindrances of modern Buddhists, if I may, just to give a comment. Um, living in a world of causality, ignoring it, uh, this is a tough one. It must be deeply contemplated. 
Okay, number four. Then we'll take a bit of a break. Number four is the nature of existence. Now, this is not a philosophical class. This is, I'm not going to bring out uh, the texts of Merleau-Ponte or Husserl. Uh, but the, the nature of being a being, a being on this planet, is such that... Um, I spoke about this yesterday a little bit. It's not an easy existence. Sometimes it's fun, yes? Have you had fun times? Yes. But that fun is a transitory thing. It's actually, for most beings, it's actually hard. Do you know that? It's actually pretty hard. We're living like nobody's lived ever before. How would you like to... Has anybody, did anybody have to walk two kilometers to get their water today? Anybody have to worry about the fact that their water was full of parasites? No, you didn't even think about it, did you? Turn on the tap, don't have to worry about it. Don't have to worry about uh, possible long-term complications of just having a glass of water. Isn't that extraordinary? Anybody have breakfast this morning? Make breakfast? A lot of people in the world can't have breakfast. Anybody visit a doctor or healthcare or just use their health card recently? Yeah? Five billion people on the planet don't have those. They have no access to medical care. It's very difficult. Very difficult to be a creature. We're living in a bubble here. I, I hope it lasts. It's a great bubble. But we're living in a bubble that's unique uh, on the planet. And that's partly why we won't see the suffering, even in our own beings. This bubble is so thick and so amazing, like never before. If I say being suffered, they go, oh yeah. And then that's the end of it. So, when we talk about this number, number four, is what actually is it to be a being with a mind living? We need to look at our states, because it's our states that we're wandering through, not the other. In other words, every person in this room has a different experience of this room. Isn't that correct? And has a different experience in the day of what the world's like. Is this, this correct? Yes. That's not produced by external means. It's produced by the conditioning and habit pattern of the mind. Does that make sense? Nothing in this room is real other than the mind states and the conditioning that makes appear like it does. The ant doesn't see you the way you see yourself. The, an ant or a fly does not see a wall the way we see a wall. But yet we think it's the way a wall is seen. Feel your bum right now. Sitting on a chair? How do you know? All it is is some momentary sensations and conjured into a chair. That's all it is. Just sensation. So... Then we have to look and go, okay, if, if our consciousnesses, for any creature, not just humans, are actually making up the world experience, this is very, this is very, very French, German, philosophical point, but also very Buddhist. If that's the case, which it is, then we want to know which are the tones shape our day. 
the tones. What are the major tones of a day? And in the Buddhist tradition, the model that's used, the model, and it, by the way, it's quite, it can be quite complex, but the basic model that's taught and used is that there are six major different kinds of states of mind that we and all creatures cycle through on a given 24-hour period. Because that's the way the world's seen. So when one, when one is in a hellish state, ever had that before? Every single person in this room has had hellish states. Is that right? Some more than others. Have you had those? Turgid, turbulent, end of the world, end of your being states, yes? One minute, two minutes, one day, two days, three days, yes? Common to human being. Hell. For others, they don't ever come out of it. Or it lasts days or months or years. It's not the external, it's the internal mind state that makes that work. Does this make sense? Sometimes we're very animalistic. We just want our food. Bring me my food now. That's all that's on our mind. Food. I want to eat now. Or I want sex now. Now. But we don't do that in our polite society. We kind of couch it around all kinds of different societal rituals. But some do. Isn't that right? Some do. Just like that. Now. Limbic system turns on. Now. I want. I want this. I want that. I'm going to get it. Now. Doesn't matter who's in the way. Now. By the way, that happens in corporations. Happens in government. I was explaining to these guys something that happened in a certain university not so long ago. Completely animalistic behavior among academics. Just just unethical, mindless behavior. Now. Now. I want it now. And I'm not even going to think about it. I just want it now. Because I want it. I want, the, I, I want to eat the full bag of potato chips. Give it to me. And once I have it, I'm going to start on the second bag of potato chips. And I might finish on the third when I'm really sick. Okay? So we cycle through these states, and that's the way we experience the world. Sometimes, we're in godlike states. Just radiant. Pervasively radiant, happy states. And then we come down, and we figure, we find out we're in a, we're in a hungry ghost state. Need. It doesn't matter what we have to eat, what we get, we're absolutely still hungry. Or the human state. Everything's sensory. Just sensory. Sensory. That's all we want. We just want sensory food. Music. Feeling, touch, taste, hearing, smell, visual. Over and over again. That's all. And if we can do that all day long, we're happy. Human realm. Human realm. So the six realms of the godlike, which, which the godlike realms are divided into like 16 and 32, so I won't get into those today. Okay? The demigod realms, the jealous god realms, I have everything, but I want more. I, I do have four cars, but actually I saw that other car the other day. Actually, I, I, well, I have one. And I, I have one and a part of a car. But I saw that other car yesterday. You know the, 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 the uh, BMW where the, the doors go up like that? I tell you, I want that. I, I'm, being, I'm being facetious, right? Because I'm being taped. I'm going to watch it. Because they can't see the smile. 
I know I, I need that. I, I must have that. And I'll do everything to get that car. Or that person. Or that thing. Or that job. Or that new position. Or whatever it is. The demigod realm. I got everything, but I need more. Is that kind of like our society a little bit? I've got everything, but I, I need more. I, I need more. And, and more. And I'm not satisfied until I have more. So we cycle through the godlike realm, the demigod realm, the human realm, the animal realm. By the way, we're not putting down animals. We're just saying that it's, there's not that much thinking going on. It's fine. Yes, sir. You know, when you're, when you're, if you're, your animal, your whatever it is, the dog goes, oh, love you, they, they actually might be also asking for food. No. Like the raccoon, you know, the raccoon comes around and goes, it's actually wanting food. It doesn't mind the affection. It does like that. It likes to know it's safe, but it also... Uh, when the hummingbird uh, comes to visit me in the shower, uh, it's an open shower, in, with the Rashid cabin and flutters around in the spray and kind of going like this. It's being really cute and it's kind of nice to have that in the shower. Oh, it wants the spray. It's not really, it doesn't really care about you so much. So, if we don't actually know how we exist from moment to moment, which is these six states of being, we're going to be chasing after the ones that make us happy, yes? So we're chasing after, some of us are chasing after a godlike state sometimes, some of us are chasing after a demigod state, some of us are chasing after a, an animal state, and some of us are actually very happy to dwell in hell states. If we don't know that, we're bewildered. So the point in, in, Buddha, in Buddhism is that we need to come out of all the states. Out. That doesn't mean you leave life, but you know how it actually works. You know that this experience of life, any kind of thing in the day, let me repeat that because it's essential. Everything that, we, everything that happens to us and everything that we experience is a wandering through of these six states but it's not real it's a projection of the mind we're all those things we are godlike we're human we're animals we're hell but if we can see it it changes everything for us we just simply know it's cycling through based on conditions and effects like a dog, you know, I read sometimes about doctors or nurses that are in war-torn areas, right in the middle of a, of a, a horrific um, war, and experience the most incredible satisfaction and happiness, helping people in the middle of a war. And others are crumbling uh, and defeated and can't handle it. So uh, how you are mentally and internally is how the world will appear to you is a fact. If you don't know it, it's a very bewildering world because you're always trying to change the external to become safe and happy, when in fact 
you have to find out how it works. That's, that's getting to grips with how it is. Without those four common foundations, we don't go anywhere in Dharma. We just meditate and sit still and don't actually progress anywhere. We can have meditative experiences. We can have visions. We can have blisses. We can have godlike states. We can have animal states. Have any of you ever turned into an animal in meditation? Yes, it happens. Completely into an animal. And it may not be a sweet animal. It might be a, a worm. Yes, that happens. Have any of you ever had a, a feeling of being like a godlike state, just radiant? No thought, blissful, like, like nothing could ever go wrong. Have you ever had that? That's a godlike state. Ever had that state where nothing could go wrong, but you want more? The jealous god state, the, the demigod, right? This is, this is the most beautiful state in meditation, but could I have more? And could it be better? And could I prolong it as long as possible? And then most of meditation is the human-like state, isn't it? Just hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, over and over and over again, discursive thought. So unless this point is grasped, people just don't get on about the Dharma. They don't get on the path of liberation. Why? They're simply going to be changing the, 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 the television channels or the, the, the channel changer endlessly just trying to get a momentary uh, happiness with whatever state they're in. And for many people, that's all meditation is. Just changing a, a dial to get a momentary uh, experience that's a little different than what you've got. I think it's easier to go to a cafe. Actually, it's easier to go see a movie. Because the view of what the liberation is about is missing. So in the teaching, I'm sorry, we'll take a break. In the teaching of Mahayana and Vajrayana, if that means anything to you, the view of why we meditate, of why we're actually entering the path and treading the path of Dharma, is, is the thing that we need to have. Otherwise, the meditation has no direction and the conduct in our life has no direction. We need the view. We need to know what Buddhahood is, we need to know what liberation is, and then we can actually meditate. Otherwise, what we do is we just collect experiences. We just collect experiences and expect something to happen. It's not gonna happen. We have to know where we're going. There are some people in this room, I suspect. No, not this room. On this planet. Much safer, right? Much safer. So there are people on this planet that would say to you, I am going to New York. And you say, if you said, I'm, if, you say, if you say to them, have you ever been there before? They go, no. But I'm going to drive to New York. Uh, without any idea of where New York is. It's a very long route. Without a map, without guidance, I know today it's very easy with GPS, even that can get confusing, especially when the road doesn't exist, or it's a dead end, and you don't know how to read a map. Uh, what do I do now? Like the truck driver that went off into the water uh, with a truck, 
using GPS. So without a map, a road map, how are you going to get to the destination? You're going to waste, could waste one, two, three years. You might wander all over North America trying to get to New York for years. You say, wow, that's a cool journey. But it's just wandering. Would you like to have a road map? So the road map is what is laid out in the teaching of Dharma. It's the road map. And the road map is precious. Why? Thousands of years of hundreds of thousands of people who've dedicated their entire lives to the roadmap are transmitting that down. That's a rare, precious commodity. In the same way that if you had to get to Victoria and you had no signs, but you had some simple instructions based on someone who knew how to get there, that would be very, very valuable. Especially if you had to get to the hospital. Wouldn't it? Be very, very valuable. It's a good time to break. Let's break up. Let's break up. So let's take a 10 minute break. See how many people can get through the washrooms in 10 minutes. And uh, try to meet back here at at, uh, about 10.30.